Families gather on the patches of grass around the water. Bras fill the air with meat-scented smoke, and there's a steady hum of chatter from picnic blankets and benches. A child squeals with joy, and then a different scream, one of horror and disbelief. The night before, someone else visited this place, and his intentions were less than pure. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 128, Bodies of Water. This episode is sponsored by AdBot. Running this podcast is time-consuming, and, well, it's just me trying to get it all done. To keep True Crime South Africa up there as a chart-topping podcast, I can't afford to spend time managing my own online marketing campaigns like Google and Bing. Thankfully, there's AdBot. AdBot manages your Google and Bing ads, optimizing them around the clock. All you do is choose your monthly budget and let AdBot do the rest. If you're a fellow one-person team like me, Visit myadbot.com to sign up and enjoy three months free. Use promo code TRUECRIME at checkout. A huge thank you to AdBot for sponsoring this episode. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Marae Prince, Shanae Hendricks, Lindy Pretorius, Rena Lombard, Renal Calso, Sam, Gwen Wilson, Iris, Tracy Lee Singh, William Munich, Hackless Wilberholzer, Bernadine Hain, Pippa Lynch, Sylvana Nash, Laura, Linda Mazira, Liesel Nordia, and Quobus for Mark for your support on Patreon, as well as Marnie Strauss for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please, 
and thank you. Keba. This week, I am cheating a little. The episode you're about to listen to was first aired on the Patreon feed in 2020. So those of you who are Patreon members may have heard it before, but I've redone it a bit and added some updated information and also re-recorded it because 2020 Nicole is not 2023 Nicole. You may have noticed that my releases have been a little more staggered recently. I'm working on some really exciting projects and it'll all make sense next year when everything is out in the public domain. But I've still been releasing four episodes a month, although some people who've commented claim I've disappeared, which is odd. A quick note that if you listen on YouTube, I don't release on the same schedule there as I do on the podcast apps, so I do recommend you also follow a podcast app to get episodes every week. Today's episode is slightly different, not just because it's been aired on the Patreon feed before, but also because it's not just about one case. It's about multiple cases, all with one thing in common. The offenders attempted to dispose of their victims in bodies of water. In researching these cases, I used various academic articles and studies, a chapter from Pete Bailefeld's book, Dossier of a Serial Sleuth, and several other media sources. So, let's get into episode 128, Bodies of Water. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. I thought this an interesting topic to cover, as these crimes are quite different from an investigative standpoint than most other cases. Victims are often difficult to identify due to the changes which occur in a body when it's submerged in water, and physical evidence can often be washed away or changed in a way that makes it no longer useful. Lakes in South Africa are not like lakes in places like America and Canada. Our lakes are like ponds compared to the endless expanses of water that are called lakes in other places in the world. To give you an idea, one of the lakes in South Africa I'll be discussing today, Boxburg Lake, is 130,000 times smaller than the smallest of the Great Lakes in North America. All of the lakes I'll discuss today are in the Gauteng province of South Africa. I'm going to split the cases up by the lake at which they occurred, although some cases involve multiple bodies of water. The first of the cases is unique for several reasons. It's a serial murder case, and it involves two offenders, which, as we know with serial killers, is very uncommon. The first aquatic crime scene is Bruma Lake, which is in Bruma, a suburb of Johannesburg. The lake is man-made and was originally a sewage catchment area, but has now become part of a natural river system sitting on the Yuxke River. It was built in the 1990s, and it was intended to be part of an economic upgrade for the area, with it serving as a focal point for a waterfront-type setup around it, 
with restaurants, nightclubs, bars, and a very large market across the road. Over the years, though, Bruma Lake became a dumping ground for both discarded items people no longer wanted and also, sadly, victims of crime. The lake is the subject of many urban legends, with people claiming that there are still bodies in the lake, although it's been drained several times since murders occurred there and no more have been found. The case which perhaps started up these urban legends occurred in the early 2000s, and it's the first case I'll discuss in today's episode. In November of the year 2000, Bruma Lake became a crime scene, as people enjoying a day out and a bite to eat were horrified to spot a body breaching the surface of the water and drifting by. The male victim's hands and feet had been bound, and he was wearing only red checkered boxer shorts. The victim was estimated to have been between the ages of 25 and 35. When police were alerted to the discovery, an unnatural death investigation was launched, which, after the autopsy and the acknowledgement that it was unlikely the victim had bound himself and fallen into the lake, was converted to a murder docket. The victim was unidentified, which only made solving his murder even more difficult. Then, just a month later, yet another body floated to the surface of Bruma Lake. The male victim was also aged between 25 and 35 and was wearing a green windbreaker jacket. This victim was also sadly unidentified. December at any venue that hosts tourists and visitors is an important time, and whispers of floating bodies and possible serial killings did nothing to boost the image of Bruma Lake. Had the discoveries been made in an area that was not frequented by tourists, it's possible that the SAPS would not have been quite as quick on the draw as they were here. The two bodies having been found in the same place and so soon after each other meant that police would already have been considering links. Not necessarily a serial killer at that point. And of course, they definitely wouldn't have uttered the words in a public space. But there was also the possibility that these were gang or organized crime hits, which could be linked back to the same group. Only time and further investigation would tell, though. Investigating officers were given a brief reprieve as Christmas ticked over into the new year, but then, on the 3rd of January 2001, a third body surfaced. The victim would sadly be the only one of the Bruma Lake victims in this series who would be identified. Franz Rashumi was 39 years old when he was bound, killed and dumped in Bruma Lake all of the Bruma Lake victims had been shot. At this point, public outcry as well as the annoyance of the business tenants in the Bruma Lake area reached fever pitch, and Police Commissioner Peramal Naidu decided that there was enough evidence that the case should be handed over to his experts in serial murder investigations, Pitt Bailefeld. Bailefeld did not exclusively investigate serial killings, but he had built up a reputation for himself in solving these complex crimes, 
and his public reputation had been so good that simply handing the case over to him and making an announcement in the press instantly alleviated some of the pressure on Naidu and, of course, shifted that pressure to Bailafault. Now the public and Broomer Lake stakeholders knew something would finally come to a head. The first decision made by Bailafault and Naidu was that the lake should be drained to ascertain exactly how many victims they were dealing with. This was a rather unpopular decision, as it would be a public revelation of exactly what was going on under the surface of Bruma Lake. Before this could be carried out, though, a fourth body rose to the surface. Another male, similarly bound, and wearing a Daily Express t-shirt with a Rugby World Cup picture of Nelson Mandela and Francois Pinard printed on it. He was also wearing navy blue boxer shorts under a navy blue tracksuit. The victim had a gold ring on his right hand, which was an interesting point to note for investigators, as it brought into question whether these incidents had been robberies or not. The Bruma area by then had become known as an area for drug dealers to gather, and it was initially thought that the murders could be drug-related. Police believed it was possible that either the men were users who hadn't paid their debt, or drug dealers who were being wiped out by rivals. The draining of Bruma Lake took two days, and as the water level dropped, an incredible stench filled the air. This, of course, was merely a very normal result of water having stood relatively stagnant for many years, but it only added to the eerie feeling in the area, as people expected, at any moment, to see more bodies emerging. When it was made publicly known that the lake was being drained, several people who'd lost items in the water over the years came forward, asking police to look for them. One man sought an engagement ring that had been tossed into the water by an angry fiancé years before. Once the water was completely drained, a landscape of trash and filth presented itself. The lake had become a dumping ground for far more than bodies, and the bottom was littered with furniture, shopping trolleys, bottles, clothes, beer cans and dead fish. Despite extensive searches with sniffer dogs, no more bodies were found. Bailafelt had recalled being highly annoyed that when tasked with refilling the lake, authorities hadn't even bothered to clean it first. Water was simply pumped back in on top of all the rubbish and discarded items. On the 3rd of February 2001, Bailafelt received a phone call from Germiston Police Station. Officers there had arrested two men for being in illegal possession of firearms, and they thought that Bailafelt may want to talk to them. The men had been arrested near Rhodes Park, which is not far from Bruma. Rhodes Park has a history of its own, and the large recreational area has its own bodies of water. During the same time that the Bruma Lake bodies were surfacing, bodies were also being found in Rhodes Park. Four victims in total would be found in the water in Rhodes Park. 
all remain unidentified. Bailefeld went out to meet and interview the two men who'd been arrested. Temba Nkosi, 22, and Simon Majola, 35, were both residents of Hillbrow. They'd both had previous convictions and outstanding charges for housebreaking, assault and theft. The men had met at a house party in Hillbrow and had quickly become friends, and then it emerged colleagues in crime. Despite the age difference, Nkosi actually appeared to be the more dominant in the friendship. This is often the case in criminal pairings. When gender is different, people often automatically assume that the female is the more submissive of the pair, but this has been proven as untrue in several cases. When gender is the same among the criminal pair, as in this instance, they're both male, it's a lot more difficult to figure out who may have been the leader and who the follower. Of course, this is only important in a psychological and criminological perspective, and not necessarily in a legal perspective, as very often both members of the pair will bear equal legal responsibility for their crimes. But it can also be helpful for investigators to figure out which of the pair is stronger in personality, because then in interviews they can focus on the less dominant person to push for information. Bailefeld described Temba Nkosi as arrogant, and he was wearing very expensive clothing when he was arrested. The detective would say that he'd always felt more in control if, if he transported suspects to his home office of Brixton, and this is what he did with Nkosi and Majola. The men were separated into different vehicles, and their bravado soon began to fade when Bailefeld also put them in separate interview rooms at the station and started in on interrogations. Despite his arrogance, Temba and Corsi actually cracked first. Halfway through the interview, he broke down into tears and began to confess. Again, this is a perfect example of the danger of making assumptions about which of a criminal pair is actually the dominant one. Appearances can be deceiving, and powerful psychological and manipulative weapons can be held within the most unassuming of people. The tale that Nkosi had to tell was far more complex and extensive than Bailefeld had ever imagined. At the time, he hadn't even been aware of the Rhodes Park murders. In fact, those had not yet been determined to actually be a series, but rather thought to be random robbery murders. Nkosi, though, set the record straight. He admitted to killing the four men found in Bruma Lake, and then also informed Bailefeld that the other four Rhodes Park victims were also theirs. There had been other crimes too, Nkosi said, at neighbouring Bazadenhout Park and Observatory Rift Park. He and Majola would target young couples who were in the park spending time together. For whatever reason, the pair hadn't killed any of the victims at the latter two parks. They would simply overpower their victims with a gun or knife and then demand their car, cell phones, bank cards, clothes, money and jewellery 
or they'd tell them they would throw them into the lake alive. As Bailefeld began to search for living victims, he realized that the robbery spree had been enormous, and even more so than the records would show, because many of the couples did not report the incidents. Some of the couples that were robbed had been involved in extramarital affairs, and some had been involved in homosexual relationships and didn't want their secrets to be exposed by an investigation. Although all of the Bezadenhout Park and Observatory Rift Park victims had survived, violence had been used on many of them. One couple, Claude Nolte and Simone Rousseau, pulled into the parking lots of one of the parks, and they were immediately attacked by Majola and Nkosi. Nolte grabbed a panga he had in his car and jumped out, hoping to chase the men off. He was overpowered, and they threatened to kill him with the panga and then shoot him. After robbing the couple, they shot Nolte. The first shot missed, and the second hit his thigh. They took Simone's cell phone and handbag and walked her into the dark. They later released her unharmed, and Nolte was eventually found by a patrolling policeman and taken to the hospital. Nkosi said that the four men in Bruma Lake had been acquaintances of theirs who'd found out about their robbery sprees and threatened to report them or tried to blackmail them. Despite claiming to know the men, they couldn't aid in identifying any of them. Baylor felt determined that the motive appeared to be robbery and drug-related. Jewelry, cell phones and motor cars were stolen and then resold. The money was then used to buy drugs, which they also resold. Adding to the strangeness of having a pair of serial murderers working together, the men were also oddly empathetic at times with their victims. One victim of robbery in Bezadenhout Park had said that Nkosi had apologised to his girlfriend for accidentally touching her breast while he searched for valuables. Despite several incidents like this, Nkosi was clearly a very violent and malicious individual. After his arrest, when she felt safe, Nkosi's girlfriend had come forward to police, telling them that she'd been a victim of severe domestic violence from Nkosi for several years, and he'd recently started to tell her that he was the serial killer that police were searching for in Bruma. The woman had almost died at Nkosi's hands herself in one particularly brutal beating while she was pregnant with his child. The baby had later died while she was giving birth. Nkosi would be charged with this assault as well. Chillingly, Nkosi admitted to Bailefalt that he had given his victims a choice about how they would like to die. He'd said that he could either shoot them or dump them in the lake alive and let them drown. Although Majola and Nkosi admitted to a certain number of murder victims, there were also several cases that Bailefalt and other investigators believed were linked to the pair that they did not admit to. One such case occurred in May 2000, when a man called Len Baird went to visit his son Errol, who lived with a man called Clyde Allen Thomas in Kensington. The house overlooked Rhodes Park. 
Lynn found Clyde dead in their driveway. Another case was of Manuel Aries Baptista, who'd visited Rhodes Park in April 2000 and then disappeared. His nephew eventually found him in hospital in a coma after having been severely assaulted. He died a week later. In September 2002, the trial of Simon Majola and Tembung Korsi began in Johannesburg High Court. The men faced 37 charges each, including murder, attempted murder, kidnapping and robbery. The main evidence against the pair was their own confessions and their possession of the firearms which could be linked to the victims. The trial seemed to show two very different sides to Nkosi. He was calm and polite throughout proceedings, but as soon as the state started to show that he was lying, he became aggressive. His mother testified that she didn't believe he was capable of such acts. He'd always been such a caring child, she said. She'd had to often rely on him to care for his younger siblings, and he'd always done an excellent job. She said that she'd had no idea that Nkosi had a girlfriend or that she'd been pregnant with his child. At this point, Nkosi started to mockingly laugh at his mother, who looked at him in horror and told the court, No, this is not my son. About midway through the trial, both men had fired their legal representatives and decided to represent themselves. Majola had actually done quite a remarkable job and was a rather impressive opponent to the state. At one point in the trial, the Majola and Corsi session had ended for the day and the next session was getting ready to start. The next case set to appear was that of Lazarus Mazingani, who is now known as the convicted Nazarek serial killer. As the sessions crossed over briefly, all three suspects were in the courtroom at one time, and although they hadn't known each other, they clearly knew of one another, as onlookers described the meeting as a convention of serial killers. The three men had embraced and chatted with their respective relatives, joining in and exchanging telephone numbers. On the 16th of May 2002, after 77 days of trial and the appearance of 91 witnesses, Nkosi and Majola were found guilty on all 37 charges. This amounted to eight murders, with the rest of the charges being robbery, housebreaking, attempted murder and the like. The pair were connected by police to at least 21 murders, but only eight could be proven. Simon Majolo was sentenced to eight life sentences, plus 422 years. Temba Nkosi was sentenced to five life sentences, plus 253 years. He let out an expletive upon hearing his sentence. Brumalek's reputation would never quite heal from being a dumping ground for serial killers, and although Majola and Nkosi were behind bars, that didn't stop other killers from using the body of water as their own place to dispose of bodies. It also wouldn't be the last time that the lake was drained to specifically look for a body. On the 31st of August 2012, Denilton Laforte arrived home from work with takeaways for his wife and four children. 
He had plans that night to spend the evening with his father and brother at a nearby pool hall. After eating with his family, he kissed his wife goodbye and headed out the door. It would be the last time his wife would ever see him. A friend was giving him a lift so that he didn't have to drive after drinking. Denilton never did make it to the pool hall. His brother and father assumed that his plans had changed and thought nothing more of it. When Denilton had not returned home the next morning, his wife reported him missing. Weeks crept by agonisingly, and still there was no sign of Denilton. Police were investigating, though, and about five weeks after she'd reported her husband missing, Denilton's wife received a telephone call. The investigating officer informed her that one of their family friends, Charles Williams, had confessed to having been involved in murdering Denilton. The man had claimed that Denilton had been dumped in Broomer Lake. Williams said that another unnamed man, who was also a family friend of the Lafortes, had killed Denilton, and then he'd helped to dispose of the body by placing the man in a suitcase and dumping him in Broomer Lake. The other unnamed suspect had been mentioned to police by Denilton's wife. The man had behaved suspiciously in her opinion, arriving at her home a few days after her husband had gone missing and giving her 100 rand, telling her it was to help buy food. Police divers scoured Broomer Lake for days with no luck, and Williams continued to insist that the body was there. Eventually, the decision was made to drain the lake slightly in order to make it easier to spot Denilton's body. Nothing was found. Denilton's wife and four children, ranging in age from 18 months to 16 years old at the time, waited for any news. Then, more than six weeks after Denilton had left their home for the last time, a severely decomposed body was discovered on the banks of the Yuxke River. Brumer Lake feeds into the Yuxke River, and it seems that Denilton's body had burst out of the suitcase that Williams had put him into and been washed into the natural river system. Denilton's wife didn't quite believe that her husband had lain there that entire time, though. She felt certain that the other unnamed suspect had dumped Denilton there after the fact. There were houses on either side of the Yuxke in the place in which Denilton was eventually found, and she felt sure that someone would have seen or smelled his body in six weeks. Charles Williams was convicted of the murder of his friend Denilton Forte. There are no further reports about the arrest of the other unnamed perpetrator. Broomer Lake was refilled, and eventually a water circulation system was put in place to try and maintain the health of the lake. This would not be a permanent solution, though, and eventually this man-made lake would be given back to the river and allowed to flow naturally to avoid the accumulation of rubbish. The urban legends that surround the lake would never cease, though and the memories of those whose lives were lost in that body of water remain inextricably linked to its existence.
I visited a few different forums and social media comment threads about the lake in my research, and every single one had a mention of bodies being found there. Another lake in Gauteng with an infamous history is Boxburg Lake. I know this lake well, as I grew up in Boxburg. In the 90s, when I lived there, the lake was a popular spot for families to visit on weekends. There were picnic tables dotted about the grounds and an outdoor roller skating rink on one end. On the other end, there were splash pools and slides and roundabouts. The lake was also a stronghold of the Avia Beer, a right-wing organization headed by the infamous Eugene Terra Blanche, who'd had a strong presence in Boxburg at that time. Every Sunday without fail, the organization would parade through the streets of Boxburg. The leaders, including Terra Blanche, would be on horseback and the rest of the members would march behind. I recall as a child watching these parades from the balcony of our flats, which overlooked the main road. Of course, I had absolutely no idea what the organization stood for. I just wanted to see the horses. Thinking back on that now sends chills down my spine. The group would then march up to Boxburg Lake and spend every Sunday braying and picnicking there. This, of course, was no leisurely Sunday stroll for the group. It was a show of force and part of a terror campaign against non-white South Africans. The Avia Beer was not the only dodgy part of the history of Boxburg Lake, though. The lake was dug out and set up for filling in the late 1800s by the then mining commissioner Montague White. As there was no provision made to actually fill the lake, the enormous hole stood open and empty for many years and was nicknamed White's Folly in an attempt to mock White's vision of a recreational lake for the area. In 1889, though, Boxburg was hit with uncharacteristic flash floods and White's Folly filled up to become Boxburg Lake. Although the lake would be a source of enjoyment for many families in the decades to come, for some it may have been better if those flash floods had never come, as the lake would also become the scene of some of the most brutal murders in the area. Possibly one of the most infamous of these occurred in 1964 and was dubbed the Body in the Suitcase Murder. A young teacher had been taking an early morning walk at Boxburg Lake on the 27th of October 1964 when he stumbled across a grisly scene. The man, Robert Becker, found a suitcase on the western shore of the lake. Inside was the decapitated torso of a woman. The torso had been wrapped in plastic, brown paper and a sheet and then placed inside the suitcase, which had washed up and popped open. There were several injuries to the torso, which pathologists judged to be that of a middle-aged female. These included several stab wounds in her chest and back. The autopsy would show that these wounds had been inflicted after death. Prior to death, though, the victim had been brutally beaten and her throat had been slit. 
it was estimated that the woman had been in the water for about two days. Police immediately began to contact stations in the surrounding areas to find out if any missing persons reports matched their victim in description. This was unsuccessful. The victim's fingerprints were compared to older cases and none matched. A public appeal was published in the newspaper, which prompted a range of hoaxes and fake tips, but nothing of value to the investigation. The gruesome nature of the murder made it countrywide news, but even with the story on the front of every newspaper across the land, no one came forward to claim the remains. The mystery would only deepen when a week after the initial discovery, during a school rowing regatta at Wemmerpan in Johannesburg, a suitcase floated to the surface. The man who opened the suitcase, Joseph Cole, found the missing legs of the unidentified Boxburg Lake victim. He would later say that when they'd opened the suitcase, something had fallen out and sunk into the dark water. It was at first thought it could be the victim's head. Police divers attempted to locate the item, but when nothing was forthcoming, it was eventually determined that the item was likely a fetus. Two months after the discovery of the torso on the 17th of December 1964, two young boys who were fishing at Zoo Lake in Johannesburg cast a line and it snagged on something. Reeling it in, they found a plastic bag containing the toothless, severed head of a woman. The head had clearly been in the water for an extended period of time as the features were completely unrecognisable. It was, however, linked back to the previous two discoveries. Forensic pathologists and forensic artists worked together to assemble a composite detailing what the victim would likely have looked like in life. This was the first time that police were able to release a visual to the public, and it made all the difference. Catherine Cronier approached police to say that her mother, Catherine Birch, had gone missing, and she was certain that the body parts belonged to her mother. Unfortunately, Cronier was convinced by her family not to go to the mortuary to identify the head as it would be too traumatic. As a result, a positive identification could not be made, and the remains would eventually be buried in a pauper's grave. A year after Catherine Cronier had reported her mother missing, and without definitive proof that she'd indeed been the body in the suitcases, Catherine Birch was declared dead by unascertained means by an inquest. Another three years would go by, with Catherine's daughter marrying and becoming Mrs. Copenhagen, before she decided that enough was enough, and she wanted to know the fate of her mother. Catherine Birch's daughter approached police captain James Bierslaw and discussed her suspicions with him. The captain decided to reopen the case. In particular, he began to search for Catherine Birch's husband, who, her daughter relayed, had also not been seen in the four years since her mother went missing. Ronald Birch had matriculated at Boxburg High School, which 
just FYI, is the same school I went to. He was described as being a real ladies' man, and Catherine Birch had been his fourth wife. He'd married Catherine in 1962 after she'd divorced her daughter's father. Captain Bierslaw determined that Ronald Birch had resigned from his job shortly after Catherine's disappearance. He then approached Catherine's employer and told them that Catherine had become very ill and she would not be returning to work. He requested that they pay out her final salary to him, which they did. After collecting the money, Ronald Birch disappeared. Captain Bierslaw was able to figure out that the year after Catherine's murder, Ronald had briefly moved in with his elderly mother in Bertram's. In 1968, Bierslaw interviewed Ronald Birch's mother in an effort to determine his whereabouts. The older lady initially denied knowing anything about where her son was, but after some intense questioning, she eventually relented, telling Bierslaw that he was living in her back room. She handed the police the key. When police made entry into the room, they found Ronald Birch present. The man was standing in front of them, wearing cut-up tin cans as bracelets. Soldered to these cans were electrical wires that were plugged into a nearby wall socket. Before police could react and tackle him, Ronald Birch flipped the switch and electrocuted himself. He died almost immediately. Despite Ronald Birch's actions seemingly speaking to his guilt, police still needed to prove that the body had indeed been Catherine Birch. After hearing of her stepfather's suicide, Catherine's daughter had gone through some of her mother's old documents, which included letters between Catherine and Ronald. She hoped to find some shred of evidence that would prove Ronald's deadly intentions. She would eventually hand over all of these items to police, who had a different idea for the letters. They figured that if the letters had been between Ronald and Catherine, both of them would have touched the letters, and it was worth dusting them for fingerprints. They hit pay dirt. Three sets of fingerprints were pulled off the letters. One set belonged to Catherine's daughter, another to Ronald Birch, and the third to Catherine Birch. They eventually had something to compare to the fingerprints taken from the body. It was a match. The body in the suitcases was successfully identified as Catherine Birch. The legend of the body in the suitcases has permeated through time. During my research, I found many threads on which people recalled their memories of this murder from their childhood. One man said he'd been at school with the two boys who'd found Catherine Birch's head. He said the boys hadn't been able to return to school for many months after their traumatic discovery. Another commenter vividly recalled the fear that had run through the community at that time. People were too afraid to go anywhere near a body of water, terrified that they too might stumble upon something atrocious. Others were intensely aware that the woman had not been identified and neither had her murderer. These comments were made more than 50 years after the event. 
That is the nature of how violent crime impacts so many and for so long. The motive for Catherine's murder was never established, although considering her remains were so badly beaten, one could assume that Ronald had been abusing her for some time. Whether or not she was indeed pregnant at the time of her murder was never established, but this could have been an impetus for the crime. If Ronald had discovered she was pregnant and didn't wish to father any children, perhaps he'd killed her to terminate the pregnancy. The gruesome nature of the crime must spur the question, was this the first time that Ronald had committed murder? Catherine's daughter was her champion and refused to allow her mother's memory to fade. Had she not pushed to have the case reopened, Ronald Birch would likely soon have taken on wife number five, and who knows what tragedy would have resulted from that. Over the years, Boxburg Lake would be the scene of several murders, and also the recovery of bodies where it couldn't be determined whether the victim had indeed been murdered, or if they'd simply been the victim of an accidental drowning. On the 28th of March 2004, the body of Dion de Villiers was found at Boxburg Lake. He'd been stabbed and his throat had been slit the night before. His vehicle, as well as many of his personal belongings, were missing. Dion's devastated father had spent the next year desperately trying to get justice for his son. When police had been unable to solve the case, he'd hired two separate private detectives. Neither were able to find Dion's killers. Then, more than a year after the murder, Dion's father came across an article about a private detective in East London who'd recently solved an eight-year-old cold case. The man's name was Christian Boerta, and he was making a name for himself as one of the country's best private investigators. Running extremely low on funds, Dion's father decided to try one last-ditch attempt and contacted Boerta, asking him if he'd be willing to travel the 1,000 kilometres from East London to Boxburg to help solve his son's murder. Boerta agreed. The reason that the case had been so difficult to solve was that there was very little evidence. In fact, the only piece of evidence that police and all three PIs had to work with was a list of cell phone numbers that had been dialed or received as calls on Dion de Villiers' cell phone the night he died. It was believed that many of these calls had been made by Dion's killers, and that needed to be the key to finding them. Christian Boerta had a reputation for making major headway in cold cases within just days of being appointed to them, and Dion's case would be no different. He identified two men, 24-year-old Ernest Fulyun and 23-year-old Vernon Douglas, through the call records, and after having interviewed them, one of the men confessed. It was alleged that they'd hijacked Dion and then driven him to Boxburg Lake. They'd proceeded to stab him numerous times. During the attack, the men said he'd cried out, God help me, to which one of his attackers had replied, There is no God, before viciously slitting Dion's throat. Douglas and Fulyun were arrested by police 
after Buerta provided his evidence and their confessions to them, and in 2006 they went to trial. Both men were sentenced to 35 years each for the murder. A police spokesperson admitted that if it hadn't been for P.I. Christian Buerta's involvement, the case would likely never have been solved. Between 2012 and 2014, another four bodies would be found in Boxburg Lake. Two of the bodies were of newborn babies. Pathologists were unable to determine whether the babies had been born alive. In 2016, the naked body of a woman was found in the lake. She was determined to have been the victim of murder and had been struck over the head before being strangled. The woman's description did not match that of any missing person cases at the time. She was determined to be in her 50s and had a tattoo of leaves on her right shoulder. Police put out several appeals to the public for information regarding the woman's identity, but none was forthcoming. The police released a photograph of the victim's tattoo in the media, but still no identification was made. Sadly, there are only three articles about this case in the media, and there is no confirmation that the victim or her murderer was ever identified. Later in 2016, another body surfaced in Boxburg Lake. This time, the body was fully clothed and was an adult male. In the man's pockets, police found bank cards, three cell phones, a wallet with money inside, and a pick-and-pay smart shopper card. Whether all of these items belonged to the man, or whether they were items from possible robberies was never revealed, and no further reporting was ever made on the case in the media. The cases I've discussed today are just a fraction of the known cases of body dumping in bodies of water in South Africa. Indeed, I've touched on just some of the more infamous lakes in Gauteng, and there are numerous other lakes in other provinces with equally toxic histories. So why is it that murderers use water to get rid of their victims, and why is it such a seemingly effective way of thwarting justice? The key lies in the way bodies decompose in water as opposed to land, and the major changes that happen to a body when it's submerged in water for long periods. In researching exactly what these differences are, I used an article published in the Journal of Academic Forensic Pathology entitled Decomposition Changes in the Bodies Recovered from Water. I think probably the base reason that many murderers use bodies of water as dumping grounds is the seeming finality of dumping a deceased person into the water and watching them sink. As the water claims the body, and the ripples on the surface fade, the killer may feel that their crime is covered up. The body is gone, never to be seen again, and with it, any evidence of their involvement. Of course, science tells us this is not the case. A body may well sink to the bottom of a lake, but it will very likely not stay there. The process of decomposition starts at the moment of death, this process causes gases to be released inside the body. As these gases build up, they cause the body to become buoyant and float to the surface. How long this takes 
depends on a few factors, including the temperature of the water. In warmer conditions, a body would become buoyant within days, whereas in colder conditions, it could take weeks. It is also these decomposition gases that are used by cadaver dogs to identify the likelihood of a presence of a body in the water. Dogs can either be walked on the banks if the body of water is small, or they can be taken by boats across the lake in order to have better access to the odors of decomposition. In most cases, the only things that will stop this inevitable buoyancy is if the body has been attached to something heavy, or if clothing on the victim becomes snagged on something on the bed of the lake, preventing it from resurfacing. Even in cases where a body has been tied down though, decomposition may eventually cause the part of the body that has been tied down or snagged to detach from the rest of the body as the current in the water pulls at the free-floating parts. We saw this in the American case of the young expectant mother, Lacey Peterson, who was murdered by her husband, Scott Peterson. She was tied to chunks of cement and dumped in a saltwater bay. When her body was eventually discovered, initial thoughts were that she had been dismembered, as only her torso was found, as well as the body of her unborn child. It would eventually be determined, though, that Lacey had likely been tied down, and the currents in the bay had caused her body to break away from the tethered sections. The research article I read regarding decomposition in water notes that upon discovering a body, the first point of investigation is to determine whether the person was in fact killed at the scene. Most often, the scene will be cordoned off, the body will be retrieved from the water, and then investigators will start to search the surrounding area for any sign of foul play. Blood, drag marks, signs of a struggle in the surrounding grass will all be indicators that the person was killed at the scene. It's almost inevitable that a body retrieved from water would have been there for some time, which already makes the job of a forensic pathologist more difficult. But this difficulty only increases the minute the body is removed from the water and it starts to react with the air around it and putrefaction is accelerated. The presence of obstructions and structures in the water will also add to changes in the body and its decomposition process. Insect activity is also, of course, very different in submerged bodies to those found on land, and depending on the type of water in which the body is found, a range of organisms may have been existing in or around the body during its submersion. When these organisms come into contact with the submerged body, they can cause injuries which could appear to have been caused prior to or at the time of death. They can also change the nature of injuries that did cause death. Stab wounds, for instance, can be changed in shape by the presence of scavengers, leaving it near impossible for forensic pathologists to determine exactly what type of weapon caused the injuries. Forensic pathologists therefore need to proceed with great caution when they're performing an autopsy on the body of a deceased that's been submerged, as quite literally, all will not be as it seems. Interestingly, the article I read indicates that submerging a body in water 
can also help to determine a more accurate time of death, or at the very least, time of submersion. As research has been developed into the post-mortem changes that occur in a submerged body, it's been possible to create a timeline for these changes, which, when tracked backwards, can identify the time at which a body is placed in the water. Again, it's not as easy as it sounds, as a range of factors can impact that timeline, including water temperature, environmental conditions, and the type of water the body is submerged in. Another factor that affects the decomposition of bodies in water is body coverings. If a body is naked, it will decompose at a far quicker rate than if it's clothed. Further, if it's wrapped in blankets or sheets, decomposition will be further delayed. I recall a case of a body that was washed up on a beach here in Cape Town in 2019. A woman walking her dog had come across a completely skeletonized lower half of a man. Someone had taken a photograph, and that had ended up on social media. What struck me about the remains was that although the legs and the hip area were completely skeletonized, the right foot, which was still clad in a shoe, still had much of its tissue on. The shoe had slowed down the rates of decomposition in the foot. Determining whether a person has been drowned or was placed in the water after death is of course a major part of the death investigation. The article reports that in drowning deaths, if the body is is discovered relatively soon after drowning occurs, it will be in the so-called drowning position, which is face down with the torso floating, the legs beginning to submerge, and the arms facing downward. In shallow water, the dragging of the arms and legs at the bottom of the body of water can mimic injuries that could be mistaken as defensive injuries to the untrained eye. The most common external changes to a body that's been submerged is wrinkling of the skin, which is commonly referred to as washerwoman's skin. You know when you've been washing dishes or sitting in the bath too long and your hands get that wrinkly effect. Well, that happens all over the body of a submerged deceased person over time. This is accompanied by a darkening of the skin, which can make it difficult to initially determine race, as well as slothing of the skin, which is when the skin eventually starts to peel away from the body. The latter makes the recovery of long-submerged bodies extremely difficult, as any grasping or moving of the body can cause damage. Most of us likely think that it's relatively easy to tell the difference between someone who's drowned and someone who's been submerged after death, and this is actually not the case. I, for one, had always mistakenly believed that if there was water in the lungs of a person, that meant they were breathing when they went in the water and likely drowned. The research article I looked at, though, indicates that if a body is in the water for a while, water will be forced into the pleural cavity, or the cavity where the lungs are, anyway. It's not uncommon for pathologists to find water and even vegetation and dirt in the lower respiratory tracts of people who were deceased when they were placed in the water. So the presence of water in the lungs is only one factor that can be looked at, and it must be matched up with other evidence to make an accurate determination. 
bodies that have been submerged for several months may present with a yellow waxy skin covering, which is not seen in any other form of decomposition. This covering is called adipocea and occurs as a result of the decomposition process in an environment where there is a lack of oxygen. The organs of a person who's been submerged in water will also often present with white spots, which is also unique to decomposition in water and could be mistaken for disease. Finally, the rate of breakdown of the body is also impacted by the types of organisms and predators in the water in which the body is found. In rivers that have piranhas, for instance, a body can be skeletonized in days. It's also not uncommon for bodies recovered from the ocean to present with shark bites which occurred post-mortem. Understanding these enormous and very specific changes that occur in submerged bodies is key to understanding why so many bodies found in water are never identified, and as a result, if murder is involved, the case is never resolved. Bodies of water across the world have some horrific tales to tell. Murderers use these places that are intended to be places of beauty and recreation and turn them into dumping grounds. Their hope, as they send their victims to their watery graves, is that their crime will simply disappear under the black surface and they'll be free to continue on with their lives. Thankfully, Forensic science continues to make great strides in methods of detection, and as such, it's becoming more and more difficult to hide bodies in this way. Eventually, and almost inevitably, those dark secrets will rise to the surface. Franz Rashumi, Clyde Allen Thomas, Manuel Aries Baptista. Denilton Laforte, Catherine Birch, Dion de Villiers, the three unidentified Bruma Lake victims, the four unidentified Rhodes Park victims, and the unidentified Boxburg Lake victims. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.